0: Hi, I'm Mike, and I'm Dan. Welcome
1: to Fifteen Minute Film Fanatics, Season Two. The season podca- two, Mike, still, season still, two, still the podcast in which two friends and lifelong film fanatics sit down and talk about movies that they love, but you know we've never actually spoken about before for one reason or another. This and the next great film- thing is that
0: there's so many of them that we can we can go season upon season upon season.
1: Absolutely, uh, you know. Thank you for everybody that listened to season one and at, and returned. You know. Uh, it, probably uh, in the process of canonization if you listen to all 20 episodes from last season and, and came back for more. Uh, absolutely,
0: absolutely. But yeah, we're hoping or, the sound is better this time. We're hoping the sound's a little better. Absolutely. We've been working really hard on this. Um, and we hope that you'll, you'll get a kick out of what we're about to do. So we're kicking it off with a movie that Mike recommended because he had just seen it again. So we watched it again for the podcast, which is the 2010 version of True Grit.
1: I cannot believe that we've never actually had a conversation about why this movie is so great. <laughs> Uh, which makes it which makes it perfect for the podcast. Uh, I'll I'll start off with being totally mystified as to why the original doesn't doesn't work, and and here's and, so, and here's why I, I want to get your get your thoughts on this. Just like the Coen Brothers remake, there's many lines, many scenes that are lifted verbatim from the Charles Portis novel. Yes, so they should work. You know, yes. my my whole thing about why the Coen Brothers movie works and just is beautiful from the first beat is because it's all lifted from the Cohn brothers and then you know they actually start the movie with the voice of maddie which i guess we'll we'll get into later but you know that for me is what makes the movie magic so i don't really understand why just because you have john wayne uh the the first one shouldn't work if they've lifted the
0: charles portis dialogue any thoughts on that yeah no but it doesn't that's what's so funny is that the first one is very faithful to the book Yes. When you watch the first one, it's very, very faithful. Um, but it's 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 almost word for word, just like the Cohen Brothers is. But I think the Cohen Brothers one is more um it, i mean it's less leaden and it's less it's less corny. Um I just watched uh again about 20 minutes before I knew we were gonna record this, I watched the um the shootout scenes. From both movies on YouTube, and it's you know it's got the same dialogue. You know, uh, I call that bull talk for one-eyed fat man. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch! Like it's the same thing. Um, him putting the reins in his mouth and going across the field, right? But it's it's um it's one difference I saw was that um in the original in the 1969 version, you cut to Glenn Campbell. We, mm. we could we could discuss Glenn Campbell. Glenn Campbell, a whole other season. But they cut to Glenn Campbell and Kim Darby. You know, the 95 woman who plays Maddie. Um, yeah. So maybe those are two of the problems. But they cut to them, and she sees Rooster going across the meadow, and she says a line from the book. She says, no grit, Rooster Cogburn, not much. Now, in the book, she says that in her brain. She's like, oh, no grit, not much. She's being like, she's admiring him. But in the movie, she delivers the line totally wrong. She's like, no grit, Rooster Cogburn, not much. And you're like, what, what, what is she even talking about? Yeah. But I think that's a key is that the the original film, the Henry Hathaway film doesn't get into like the ironies or the fun of the book, because you and I are both huge, huge fans of the book, that the way the Coen brothers do.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also say that um, the, uh, t- to your point, the secondary and tertiary casting in the Joel and Ethan Coen version is yeah. impeccable as always. The casting for Lucky Ned Pepper was like, um, finding a Rorschach for Watchmen It's a the <laughs> yeah. perfect the perfect villain and, and wiry and strange yeah. and weird in all the same ways. And I agree with you. I think that the the casting of Maddie, the person that the that plays Maddie, I I don't have her name right in front of me. Uh, she is awkward and brilliant at, at being Maddie. Um, yeah, you know, I love that Always scene where. That. Yeah, yeah, I love that scene where she uh she does the thing about the midnight caller.
0: Yeah, I'll be it's the midnight great. caller. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, no, I, great. I, yeah. I will be the caller, and uh, someone will have to be the caller. And I will tell you what to say. I'll do all the other parts myself. Um, yeah. Which again is just verbatim out of the book, which is great.
0: A friend of mine said that Haley Steinfeld was too cute to play Maddie because Maddie's supposed to be uglier because they say you got hit with the ugly stick. And I thought yeah. that was a small. I thought that was a small objection to make for a movie that's so well cast. I mean, and people think that John Wayne, you know, he he's not right for that part. He's no. not. Rooster is supposed to look like Grover Cleveland. And he's yes. supposed to be this like this like kind of big, like you know, like rolling around, like talking like you have bridges and then gotta get yeah. to get put the captions on sometimes. You notice <laughs> what he's saying. Um but John Wayne like declaims everything like he's Cicero. It it just doesn't work.
1: The Jakes is occupied. We'll be yeah. for some time. <laughs> we'll be for some
0: time. Now that's <laughs> now that's another great thing about that. Here's another theory I had was that um Not only do the Coens do it word for word from the book, which is great. And that, of course, is what makes great adaptations a lot of times, right? Yes. Like, for instance, it's so funny you mention this because a lot of people don't know that the great film of the Maltese Falcon, John Huston's, is the third attempt to film that. Yes. Yes. And that when John Huston made it, he was smart enough to take the novel and put it next to his typewriter and just just type all the dialogue word for word. So you can hold the book open while you watch the Maltese Falcon. Mm-hmm. And, it, and plus, but again, he cast it perfectly. Yes. And he had the spirit of the thing done so well, right? But um, back to my original point was that the Coen brothers did the book perfectly, but everything they added seems like it still could be from the book. Yes. Like the Jake's is occupied. Like when they meet the guy with the bear, the, the bear. Yes. Head on his, like that's not in the book, but it could be
1: absolutely um they got into portis's spirit then he inhabited them or they inhabited him one way or the other
0: yeah i think if i were i've mentioned this before in season one um that if i were emperor and i said i would make all the movies start at the times they said on the internet another my another edict i would issue was that the cohen brothers are required to film all the portis books all five of them
1: i think that they would do an excellent norwood speaking of glenn campbell
0: Which of which, of course, was made with Glenn Campbell and Kim Darby, which I've never seen. Um, I can't imagine. I can't imagine seeing it even as a curiosity. How old was Kim Darby at the time? When she made True Grit? Yeah. I don't know, but she was pregnant. Right. Yeah, I know. I that. didn't she know was, that. Yeah, she was. But she was pregnant. She I've was. always
1: I've always thought the same thing, which is I'm 30 now, and I I, th- I think she still had a good five on me. Yeah. You know, when she when she played Maddie Ross.
0: He's totally wrong. So I want to end the first thing by just reading something pretty cool was in 2008, I wrote a letter to Charles Portis because I ended up getting his address, his P.O. box, because I wrote him a couple of letters beforehand just to say like how cool he was and uh, his publisher forwarded him to me and he wrote to me. And I said to him, I'm like, you know, I'm really excited. I heard, I heard True Grit's going to be a new movie. You know, do you have any news about that? And here's what he wrote on his little um, piece of uh, uh, onion, uh, onion skin paper. It said, um, thanks for writing to me. As for the True Grit movie, all I know by way of my agent is that the Cohen brothers are buying it. They do most of their own writing, I am told, so I doubt I will ha- I will have much to do with it. We'll see. I hope this finds you well. best Charles Portis <laughs> so even he was <laughs> I love that so I'm told my agent got it, you know, just totally blowing it off. The
1: best is though, if you read any Charles Portis books, and I hope that anybody listening to the podcast yeah, right now who loves who who loves this will go out and pick them all up. Uh, they're brilliantly published by the Overlook press and it, missed a Nobel Prize for literature for whoever's running the uh, yeah. the, the Overlook Press. Uh, but the beautiful thing about that letter and his response is you can imagine a Jimmy Burns type character and an older Matty totally. Ross type character reading your letter and at once appreciating it, but rolling their eyes.
0: <laughs> totally, and a shout out to the Oxford American uh, online. They just published a lot of um, reminiscences about Portis, who, who sadly died this year. Um, and so uh, that's a great thing if you go online, or you can read the eulogy that was said at his at his funeral and stuff like that. It's really really great. They're brilliant, but
1: nobody um, nobody eulogized uh, the man like himself. I don't know if you read uh, um, what's the what's the name of that article? Um, something of Jackson's.
0: Oh, uh, um, a multitude of Jacksons. Mult- or, uh, yeah. I,
1: either way, I forget what the title's called, but it's yeah. it's insignificant. But the the actual content is is great. And P- yeah. Portis on Portis is just as wonderful.
0: Yeah, no, he's great. He's great. Okay, I'll see you in segment two. You got it. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing.
1: So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.
0: Hi, welcome back. In segment two, we love to talk about a moment or a line or a segment or a scene that we think is interesting or epitomizes the movie experience as a whole. Uh, Mike, what's yours?
1: So mine is when they break in to uh, the, that bunkhouse and they find a moon. Uh, yeah, the, the dugout, and they, they find uh, the, those two guys, and uh, the kid is fatally stabbed after giving Rooster and Maddie the information that they need, um, and uh, he says, do something. He finally comes to his senses and f- thinks that there's time to save him He says, do something, and Rooster says, I can do nothing for you, son, <laughs> and, he, and and I think that it captures a, a couple of things there. Um, one is the matter of fact nature of the violence in a lot of the book and the film is I think Mm -hmm. what makes it work. Um, Joel and Ethan Coen really picked up on what the tone of violence should be from the book. You know, they don't, they don't shy away from it, but at the same time, it's not necessarily the focal point um, of the movie either, the way it would be in something like Unforgiven, you know, or, or a Western Western, as opposed to I, I don't know what you'd call it, a revisionist Western, yeah. I think. is the, I don't know
0: what trigger it is, yeah. <laughs> but
1: w- w- whatever it is, the point is that the violence has to be just as violent, but somehow also not the focal point of the yeah. scene. Um, now, there's one interesting thing, which is, as much as I love this film, and I, I really do enjoy watching it start to finish, there's one thing that you miss and only pops up a couple of times, which is really the voice of Maddie coming across from the page. Yep.
0: Uh-huh. You know, I,
1: I know you'll probably cover this, but th- it's so... Brilliant and almost, it's like a warm bath or something to be surrounded by that voice um, all the time. And I just wanted to quote the line from the book, which is Maddie as a 14 year old girl, she's looking into the eyes of this kid only a few years older than she is, who kind of got caught up in the wrong gang. Um, And she said, here is what I saw in his eyes confusion and so she she doesn't shy away from it either she doesn't say that she knelt and prayed for him or that she doesn't care and even rooster doesn't shrug his shoulders and walk away he he addresses the kid as well as he can which is he says uh uh, you know your part has done for you and i have done for him which is about the the best that you can do uh you know and that's their sense of the old west where it's the place where that is the best you can do he did for you and i've done for him
0: yep and also in the book in that scene, remember, she, after he gets his fingers chopped off, she says, I am better out of this. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, funny what you said about her voice is that, is that um, you can imagine the, the struggle that the Cones must have faced when they, when they wrote the screenplay, which is, do we just have her do voiceovers the whole time? Because her voiceovers in the book, so to speak, quote unquote voiceovers, are what makes it great. So that's why my moment uh, is really a scene. The thing that impressed me is that whole opening segment where you find out about how her father got killed and the snow falling down on his body. Because that is word for word from the book. But you Mm -hmm. get such a good sense of of her values and what she cares about and what she's like. That after that initial monologue, it's almost like Maddie's TED Talk. To the audience about um, about how she sees the world and what's important and why it's not the same if if they bring Cheney back to get because he killed the senator's dog it's not the same he's got to be hung in Arkansas you get that whole sense there that you can then drop out of her voice as as the as the movie goes on and then bring it back at the very end when she walks away from Rooster's grave
1: that was brilliantly said I think that that you're right the drop off from the voiceover narration you know into uh, what happens is is great and almost unnoticeable. Yeah, Um, and so that's you're right. That's that's an excellent point. Then you can bring it in with Adult Maddie. Um, I love when she she tells the guy who doesn't take his hat off to keep her seat. Trash.
0: (laughs) That's one of the James brothers. Yeah, keep your seat. Trash. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll see you in segment three. All right. So welcome back to part three, where we talk about the ending or the title of the big takeaways. Um, the title, of course, is is great, but I don't know how much there is to say about it. There's not much we can explain about the title. It's awesome. But what I want to talk about is what happens at the very, very end of the film and what that has to do with the last two lines of the book.
1: Well, I, I yeah, can you quote the last, can you yes, quote I the can. last two lines? I have, of
0: I have the book right here. So, um, so. Uh, at the end, you know, Maddie says, "I never heard from Lebeef again." Who, by the way, is great. Matt Damon is so good as lebeef
1: Yeah, we didn't good. even get it. We didn't yeah, even get, we didn't get, to, get that.
0: to him, right? But um, she says, "I bet she's in his 70s now." And then she says, uh, "I expect some of the starch has gone out of that cowlick." Time just gets away from us. This ends my true account of how I avenged Frank Ross's blood over in the Choctaw Nation when snow was on the ground. Now, in the film, as you know, they she says in the in the uh, voiceover, "This ends my true account." Et cetera, et cetera. Time just gets away from us. So it's kind of interesting that the Coens flipped those last two sentences of the book. So what do you make of that?
1: So I understand it only for one reason, which is if you start to if you start to pick the ending of the book apart, there's an obvious resonance um, in the stresses and unstressed syllables, almost the, in the in the <laughs> pentameter.
0: Away from us,
1: yeah, in, in the actual iams, the stresses mm-hmm. uh, of the of the spoken language, mm-hmm. the heard language. So I I absolutely understand why the book would end that way. Um at the same time, the resonant idea that time just gets away from us yeah. you know because M- Maddie makes an account for herself you've you 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 are made to under you're made to understand that she's an old woman all through the all through the book you understand right. that she's she's picking right. up when she's when she's fourteen, but there's a brief part at the end where she's explaining her character yeah. you start you start to understand why she is the way she is, and that's <laughs> time getting away from us yeah you know and,
0: uh, I always thought that at the end of the book, I mean, maybe I'm reading into it too much. I thought that she thinks about Labeef. I mean, you can just see how her brain goes in that last paragraph. She thinks about Lebeef, I wonder what his hair looks like. I bet the starch is taken out. So thinking that his hair is gone, his hair is, uh, gone or he lost his cowlick, that makes her say time just gets away from us. But then I think she goes back to all business. Like she has a moment of like emotion and then she's like, this is my true account of how I avenge Frank Ross's blood. I think she almost madly catches herself because she's not about to get sentimental on the reader. Yeah, I agree. I
1: think that this, I actually find, I bet that some of the starch has gone out of that cowlick to be the most sentimental thing that she says. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, and that's why in, she catches herself
0: with it. ends up like a police report.
1: But the a, a beautiful, poetic, somehow yeah. iambic <laughs> police report. Police report. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think that the cones do one more thing, interestingly, which I would like to point out, which is that Maddie, as she appears in that scene where she's talking to the guy at the carnival, and yeah. she tells the James brother to keep to keep her seat, is actually an in between Maddie.
0: Yes, it's not the old lady Maddie. It's like a forty year old Maddie. Bingo. Yeah.
1: So I, that I found really really interesting. In other words, you could have her be a cranky and sitting in the rocking chair, but the but the Coens really honed in on um, yeah. the image that you'd want to see, which is how the what how which is how the West. It's how uh, riding away out of the barn. And being in the Choctaw Nation gets turned into an American myth, yeah. uh, Which which is what really powers the movie, and you see the posters up everywhere, you know. And I think that's um, I don't know if that's Jesse James's other brother. I think that's right, who that's supposed to be, Um, you know, who they parade out, and of course, just like they're parading out Rooster Cogburn, you know, um, hero of the Confederate Army you know, whoever whoever he's she gets supposed him a CSA,
0: to be. She gets him a CSA gravestone.
1: She does, but um, it's. A, I think it is a brilliant moment to choose the in-between Maddie yeah. versus the older Maddie. And I think that that's why, um, I think the older Maddie who is the narrator, the speaker of this book, time has already gotten away from her, which is why she ends on the other one. Right. Um, the, the Maddie who's shown in the movie time is getting away from her.
0: Yeah. But it's not away from her yet, and I think the reason that the the reason that the Maddie in the novel is telling you the story is because she knows all about time. She's experiencing raw time, and she wants to she wants to set the record straight. That's why you know the first sentence is you know something like people do not give a credence that a fourteen year old girl could go off into the Choctaw Nation, Nation. Um, and that she's she wants to she wants to make it right, and she doesn't want it to become a sideshow like Rooster did.
1: That's right. And what a, so what a brilliant remake, Dan. I know um, we've talked in the past uh, about about great remakes and some films that were remade oh, that yeah. should never have been remade do you do you have any thoughts on other great remakes
0: yeah i was just wondering like you know it's funny like people always say oh the, you know like, the, like there's a cliche like the book's always better but that's not true no uh, if that were the case then there's no Hitchcock movies there's no kubrick movies right but it's something people like to say <laughs> and people love to say all oh, the originals better like you know um i remember listening to people that were miffed when they heard the coen brothers were going to make true grit i was elated I was, you know, they're like, oh, you can't top John Wayne. And, you know, that was John Wayne's great performance. Like John Wayne made, made 15 movies better than True Grit easily. Easily. easily right? So I was thinking about what, I was trying to think of what movies where the remake is better. Go for like. it. I came up with, um, and these aren't like great movies, or, but I came up with um, Ocean's Eleven. Yep. Far, far better than the Sinatra one. Yep. I love Sinatra and I love the Rat Pack, but that, talk about a leaden movie. I mean, the, the George Clooney one is so much better. Um, I think that uh Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland, the remake is better than the original. Which
1: one is the original?
0: The fifty-six one, the nineteen fifty-six one that, that everyone watches in film school. Oh, in the- oh so
1: Don so Sutherland is the remake.
0: Yeah, Donald Sutherland's the remake. Oh think- good,
1: because that's that's the version I like.
0: Yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> yes. Um uh you know, I think I think that Hitchcock's um own remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much. The, oh, absolutely! Is better than the original, the thirty-four one. Wow, we're in a lot of agreement here. Um, but one, one where the original is definitely better, where I think the remake is just horrifyingly terrible, is Peter Jackson's King Kong.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, yeah, so horrifying. the the one thing I want to say about True Grit is that there is a brief, brief, maybe fifteen seconds altogether of green screen malfunction when a rooster is dry <laughs> is, is riding Maddie uh, to safety. With the stars but, behind him, but yeah. that is that is literally the entirety of king kong yeah king kong is just one green screen mistake for two hours yeah
0: yeah or more than two hours More than. but you
1: you took the words out of my mouth because i was going to say my favorite adaptations um or or, or remakes really um are i think are, are both by daphne du maurier and they're both uh hitchcock films which is i don't think you can say what you want about rebecca as a novel it's got a great first line uh but the rest of it is just Absolutely, um, mind-numbingly boring. Uh, but I, I yeah, <laughs> I but I I find it as a novel, mind-numbingly boring. And, <laughs> and I and I go and I go for a British Gothic. Anime. This is this is all yeah. my bag.
0: I, I've read. I've I know. I know a lot about your literary taste, and you don't mind boring at all. Like you could read six hundred pages of paint drawing. I know that about you.
1: <laughs> Last night I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. It's a great line, but that's a. It's a much 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 better uh, movie. Really? And I, I and the birds is just the birds is just painful and i think uh, yeah. on the page um, yes. but i love the birds as a movie it's a yeah. terrifying
0: it's a movie and, but even then like everyone forgets about like that there's long sections of the birds where you're kind of like where are the birds where are the birds <laughs> we don't really need to hear about suzanne plochette's love life like you just forget that whole thing is in there you're like oh that's right we have we have this and i know why it's in there et cetera, et cetera. but sure. remember you kind of take it out like there's no scene like that in jaws
1: no now jaws is as you said it jaws is three great scenes and no bad ones
0: which is a better well, that's another movie that's better than the book
1: absolutely right, absolutely yeah. well, because as you rightfully said in the podcast there's so much that's in the book that was taken out yeah uh, absolutely in order to my
0: subtraction yeah all right so thanks for listening we we hope you'll come back as we go through season two we're really looking forward to this you can tweet us what movies you'd like us to cover at one five M I N film at fifteen minute films on Twitter. And again, please subscribe and like us on Apple Podcasts or wherever we you get your podcast.
1: Thanks so much for listening. Take Bye-bye. care.